For these last eight weeks, we've been on a journey together, haven't we? A Jesus journey. And we've been exploring the life of this man, our Savior. We've been looking into his, his life and his miracles and his disciples. We looked at his baptism and what that was all about and his temptation and his teachings. Last week, Pastor Jay opened our eyes to his heart, his heart for people. And today we conclude our series on Jesus right here. We conclude it at the cross. And just kind of as a side note, I, I googled the cross this week and uh, came across the story of a guy named Arthur Blessett. Have you heard of this guy? I remember first hearing about Arthur Blessett back in the early 70s, this crazy religious nut who was walking across the country with this 12-foot cross over his shoulder. And I thought, what a, what a strange guy. And uh, when I googled the cross this week, his website came up, and I checked it out, and I discovered that he's been walking with this cross for the last 40 years, not just across the country, but all over the world. He's now in the Guinness Book of World Records, holding the record for the world's longest walk, 38,102 miles and counting. His wife walks with him now. He's walked the equivalent of one and a half times around the globe through 315 countries, all seven continents, and he's been arrested 24 times. <laughs> uh, kind of eccentric, wouldn't you say? But you know what? In the kingdom, there are all kinds. And uh, I can even envision some of you sold out types doing something wild and crazy like that. But you know, he did it and is, continues to do this all in an effort to draw attention to the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. And if ever there was a message that the world needs to hear, it's the message of the cross. You know, the cross was Jesus' mission. <clears throat> in one sense, you could even say that Jesus was born to die. That the purpose of Christmas was Good Friday. It is said that when he was an infant, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes, it says in the King James Version. Those were literally burial cloths. A little baby born to die. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly when it happened, but somewhere during Jesus' life on this earth, he became acutely aware that he was on a mission from God and that that mission was to die. And certainly during his final three years, the scriptures tell us plainly that Jesus understood what his mission was and that he was resolved to carry out his father's plan. And as the time was drawing near, Luke records that he said to his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. A little later it says in Luke, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Later, on the very night that he would be arrested, just after the Last Supper with his disciples, he took them to one of his favorite prayer places, the Garden of Gethsemane. And Matthew records what happened there. Then he said to them, his disciples, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed 
My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He knew what was coming, didn't he? He knew he was headed for a cross. You know, standing here today in a church auditorium, gazing up at this cross, it's easy to to get the wrong idea about it. It's easy to miss the the gruesomeness. It's easy to miss the the brutality, the, the utter nausea of the cross. I think if you and I had actually been there in real time on Golgotha's hill that day and and, and had taken in that scene of what happened, we might respond a little differently. I want you to take a look up at the side screens and behold this scene on Golgotha's hill. kind of hard to watch, isn't it? Hanging there on that cross that day, battered beyond recognition as a human being, bloodied, savagely beaten. Just before he died, Jesus gasped one final cry on that cross. It is finished. In the original language, it's one word. It's the word tetelestai in Greek, and that's what Jesus cried out, tetelestai. It's an interesting word. It's the word used whenever a Greek painter would paint a beautiful portrait. And, and when he was done, if he was, if he was pleased with his portrait, which was very rare for a Greek painter, if he was p- completely satisfied with it, he would stand back and look at that painting and say, Tetelestai. The word c- could actually be translated, Mission accomplished perfectly. It's perfect. It was the word used whenever a little lamb would be born, and the owner of that lamb would inspect it and look for for blemishes and for spots. And if he could find none, if it was a perfect little lamb, the owner would step back and and with satisfaction say, Tetelestai. It's without spot. It's without blemish. It was the word used whenever there was a, a debtor in prison who couldn't pay his way out. 
And if someone perchance came along and paid the price for his release, he would be given a, a parchment on which was stamped that one word, tetelestai, paid in full, and that debtor would be released from prison. And if someone encountered him along the way and said, hey, where are you going? All he had to do was produce that parchment and show them that one word, and he, had to be, he was freed to go. It was the same word that was used whenever the Greek cyclops, which was a, an army comparable to our special forces, army rangers or marine recon. And whenever that, that army was in battle, and if the battle was an overwhelming victory, if, if, if the enemy was being beaten down, if it was a thorough thrashing, kind of like we beheld yesterday down at the horseshoe, and if it was such that the enemy could not rise up again and victory was assured, a runner would stand at the battle lines and once he realized the battle was won, he would run back to town and just panting and out of breath. And when he would see the townspeople, the loved ones of those fighting men, the wives and the children, and when he would see them in the distance on the horizon and he would yell out this one word, Tetelestai! And the people would leap for joy because the victory had been won. You see, when Jesus was on the cross and he shouted out, Tetelestai, he wasn't saying, it's finished with my life. He's saying, it is finished for man's salvation. It is done. It is complete. My mission is accomplished. There is no spot, no blemish. It's perfect. The price has been paid. The debt has been settled. The victory has been won. And we should leap for joy because our salvation has been purchased. Jesus accomplished so much. In those moments hanging on the cross that day, it would make your head spin if you understood it all. The work of the cross is mind-boggling. It's deep, it's powerful, and I'd like to share some of it with you this morning. Is it okay if I teach a little theology here today? This is going to be 300-level stuff, okay? So if you're a newer believer, if you're fresh into the kingdom, fresh into the family of God, stay with me. Maybe later, talk to one of your more mature brothers or sisters about some of these things. On your study outline, there's an image of a cross surrounded by blanks. Now, I'm going to give you some big words this morning that theologians use to describe what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, Jesus' cross was a cross of redemption. Did you say that word with me? Redemption. The cross of redemption. You say, what does redemption means? It mean? It means to pay the price necessary to free someone from slavery and effect their full release. To be redeemed means to be bought out of the slave market. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood. I love the way Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For you know, that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The Bible teaches plainly that a price had to be paid to set people free from enslavement to sin and their old sinful lifestyle, and that price was innocent blood. And so we sing, Jesus paid it all, right? His cross was a cross of redemption. But not only that, Jesus' cross was a cross of substitution as well. We say, He died for our sins. He was our substitute, wasn't He? 
hanging there on the cross, he was taking the place of sinners so that their guilt and the punishment they deserved was transferred to him. That's what it means when you read in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, that he was pierced for our transgressions, not his own. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's what it means when you read the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul said, I received what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. When he was hanging on the cross, he was dying for us. He was our substitute. And again, Peter writes, For Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. He might bring you to God. We need to understand today that when Jesus hung on that cross, he was our substitute. He took our place. In one of his books, Chuck Colson, you know who he is. Chuck tells the story of uh, back when he was in prison. You know, he was one of President Nixon's top aides during the Watergate era, ended up getting indicted and going to prison for his part in all of that. But after the judge handed down Chuck Colson's sentence, something happened that just stunned him. One of his friends came to him and said, Chuck, I, I am offering myself to serve your sentence for you. I am offering to take your place to be your substitute to pay for your crimes. And Chuck Colson tells the story of how deeply, how that stunned him and how deeply that marked him and gave him a picture of what Jesus Christ had done for him, being his substitute, as he is all of our substitutes. Jesus' cross was a cross of redemption. It was a cross of substitution. Third, new word for you, okay? His was a cross of propitiation. I hope they're going to leave that slide up for a few moments so you can get the spelling on that. (laughs) You say, what in the world is propitiation? Well, propitiation is what happens when you pay your traffic fine after you got ticketed for going 60 in a 35-mile-an-hour zone. And when you pay your fine, that is your propitiation. That satisfies justice, doesn't it? It satisfies the demands of the law. Well, that's what propitiation is, to satisfy the demands of justice. And that's what Jesus' cross was. That's what Paul wrote in Romans 3.25. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement or a propitiation through faith in his blood. And he did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. I love how 1 John 4.10 reads in the King James Version. It says, Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, we don't think of it this way very much, but not only did Jesus die for us as our substitute, in a sense, he also died for God. See, God is a holy and righteous God, and our sin is actually a capital offense. Our rebellion as humankind is actually a capital offense, high treason against the God of the universe. And in His holiness, His justice demands a payment that all sin be punished. Justice must be served, and Jesus' death on the cross satisfied God's justice. 
Does that make sense? Aren't you glad that you don't have to pay for your own sins? Is anybody here today? Can I get a little deep for a few moments? May I get a little deep for a few moments? There are theologians who believe, and I think they have biblical cause for believing this, that something very unique happened when Jesus' body was hanging on the cross or perhaps when Jesus' body was in the tomb. They believe that during that time, Jesus' spirit left his body. His body was still there on the cross or in the tomb, but his spirit departed from his body and ascended into the heavens. Where there is, the book of Hebrews tells us, the real tabernacle in the heavenlies and the real holy of holies. And these theologians believe that in, the, in that moment, the spirit of Jesus came into the heavenly tabernacle with a bowl full of his own blood and walked into the most holy of holies where the Father was, and he took his own blood and sprinkled it on the mercy seat there in the holy of holies in the heavens, in effect saying, Father, here is my blood as satisfaction of justice because of their sins. You say, where do you get that? Hebrews 9, 12 through 14, check it out. Write that down. Hebrews 9, 12 through 14. Jesus, blood, the satisfaction of the just demands of a holy God. Jesus' death was a propitiation, completely satisfying the holy wrath of God against sin. You say, well, I didn't know the cross did all that. Yeah, and there's more. Jesus' cross was also a cross, another new word perhaps, of imputation. Imputation. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, imputation is when one person's balance gets applied to someone else's account. Don't you wish that could happen with you and Warren Buffett? Like where his balance just somehow gets transferred to your account, and on Monday morning you get online to check your bank balance, and you go, whoa, where did all those extra zeros come from? I love imputation. Well, the cross achieved for you and for me an even better imputation. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we sang it earlier, says this, God made him who had no sin, who was that? Jesus, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is like being the poorest student in the class and seeing the best student in the class get your report card, like your C's and D's and F that you deserve, but seeing that report card go to the student who should have got straight A's, who deserves straight A's, but they get your report card. This is amazing. That Jesus, the one who had no sin, would have credited to his account, or maybe we should say debited to his account, our sins. That's imputation. Your sin and mine applied to the account of Jesus Christ. And that's only half of it. When, here's the better part. When you or I put our faith in Christ as our substitute, not only do our sins get imputed to his account, his record, but unbelievably, we get his report card of straight A's. 
So that one day, all those who are in Christ, when they get to heaven and stand before God, can offer to God a perfect, straight-A report card that we received from Jesus Christ. Martin Luther said this, at the cross, there was a great exchange. It's true, isn't it? I mean, what... What otherworldly kind of foreign kind of love would make that available to us? Only the love of God. The cross was a cross of imputation where a great exchange took place. The cross made that happen. Number five, the cross is also a cross of reconciliation. Or another word, atonement. And we know what this is, don't we? Reconciliation is when two parties who were at war, who were enemies, when the hostility gets removed and peace is established between those two parties, we say they've been reconciled. Now look at what the Bible says in Colossians 1. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Do you remember those days? Do you remember those B.C. days? Where God was not in your life, He was not in your thoughts, you wanted to run your own life, you didn't really care what Jesus thought. Paul writes and says, you you were like that once, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, His death, to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. From enemies to friends. And then there's this other dimension of reconciliation that we read about in Ephesians 2, where he says, in this one body, that's the body of Christ, to reconcile both of them, Jews and Gentiles, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Say, what is that about? Well, most of us realize that the cross, in its physical construction, the Roman cross has two beams. There's a vertical beam, and a horizontal beam. The vertical beam was called the stipes. Say that with me. Stipes. The the cross beam was called the patibulum. Don't even try to say that with me. And and one was vertical and one was horizontal, and and we can see from the symbolism even of the cross that God had a two-dimensional reconciliation in mind when he, he punished his own son on the cross. Do you see it? The vertical beam represents... A holy God and sinful man being reconciled to each other and brought together. But the horizontal beam uh, represents man being able to be reconciled with man. It says that in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility has come down. It's been removed. And so now at the foot of the cross, Jew and Gentile, black and white, rich and poor, slave and free, male and female, can be brought together in unity and be reconciled because of the cross of Jesus Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And in Christ, I've seen people who in this world would never talk even, who would be enemies, who would be hostile to each other, coming together in sweet unity and fellowship because they share that most common bond, Jesus Christ. And that only happens because of the cross. His cross was a cross of reconciliation. Number six, it was a cross of forgiveness. Finally, a word that we are more familiar with. We may not be familiar with the meaning, though, of the word forgiveness, because literally the word means to send away. 
to release completely. In Acts 10, 43, we read this. All the prophets, talking about the Old Testament prophets, all of them testify about Him, Jesus, that everyone who believes in Him receives, what does it say? Forgiveness of sins through His name. Without the shedding of blood, the writer of Hebrews says, there is no forgiveness. But Paul says in Ephesians 1, in Him we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Forgiveness. The word means to send away. For a picture of this, you could read in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, which some of you have never read, never touched, not even sure where it is in the Bible. But if you read in Leviticus chapter 16, you'll find... There, the record of God giving instructions to Moses and to Aaron on the Day of Atonement to get two goats and to slaughter one and, and, and kill it and take its blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. But then he said, now take that second goat, let it live, and I want Aaron to go to that goat and to place his hands on the head of that goat and while he, he is in that posture to confess the sins of the people of Israel, symbolizing that their guilt and shame and blame is being transferred from the people to the goat, and then send the goat away. Drive that goat into the wilderness. That goat would eventually become known as what? Scapegoat. Scapegoat. Taking, bearing all the blame. Bearing all the sin. It's a picture of forgiveness, of sending away our sins. And you know what? Jesus Christ became our ultimate scapegoat. On that cross, it says He became sin. He wore our sin. First Peter says He bore our sin. And our sins were carried away by Jesus Christ. In 1984, Velma Barfield was the first woman to be executed in the United States in 22 years. She had been convicted of poisoning and killing family members, people closest to her. It was quite brutal. Most people who heard of her story believe this woman deserved to die, deserved to be executed. That's not the whole story of Velma Barfield. While she was in prison on death row, Velma had a transforming experience of trusting Jesus Christ. It wasn't a typical jailhouse conversion, you know, that only lasts as long as the appeals process. This was the real deal. People who knew her say that her life was completely transformed by Christ. Once a cold-blooded murderess, she became a person of sensitivity and grace. Once untroubled by her crimes, Velma came to feel great anguish over them. She became tormented by the realization of what she had done, and as her execution date drew near, she came to wonder if even her Savior could forgive her for the unbelievably gruesome crimes she had committed. It was then that a friend named Ann Lutz came into her life and in a conversation one day offered her these words, Velma, have you ever been to the beach and seen all the tiny crab holes in the beach? And Velma answered that she had. 
And have you, ever seen, have you ever seen the huge holes dug by children building sandcastles all along the beach? Yes, Velma had seen those also. Velma, what happens when the tide comes in? Asked Anne. She said, well, it, it covers them all. And Anne said, that's right. It covers them all. And that's the Bible's promise to you. That the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sins. The little ones, the big ones, all sins. You know, sometimes I meet people who are tormented by their past and by the things that they've done in their past. And they say things like, if you knew, if you only knew the things that I'd done, you know, and if God only knew the things that I'd done, he'd never forgive me. I want to look at you today. If you've never had a pastor look you in the eye before and tell you this, look at me. There is nothing that you have done that could place you outside the reach of the grace and mercy of the cross of Jesus Christ. His blood cleanses from all sin. The most heinous, gruesome crime can be forgiven because of the cross. Because it's a cross of forgiveness. The last thing I want to mention, and I could go on and on, but this is the last one I'll talk about. Jesus' cross is a cross of triumph, victory. The cross of Jesus disarmed the enemy by removing from his arsenal his chief weapon. You know what that is? Fear of death. Notice what Paul wrote in Colossians 2.15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 writes this, Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their what? Fear of death. I went and visited a family a couple weeks ago. They're Saturday night attenders here. And the husband has contracted cancer, a pretty serious form of cancer. And, you know, he's in the battle for his life. And I sat at their kitchen table with them, and we were talking and getting ready to pray. And, and he just looked at me, and, and he said, I want you to know something, Steve. He said, I am not afraid to die. I would love to have a few more years on this earth to love my family and to serve Jesus Christ. But he said, because Christ is in me, I am not afraid to die because if I die, I'm going to go, with, go to heaven and be with Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible promises me. And I could tell in his eyes that he meant it. You know, if you're in Christ today, the worst thing that the devil can do to you is kill your body. That's the worst thing he can do is kill your physical body. He cannot take away that possession which is most precious, your eternal life. He cannot reverse the work of the cross that has been done in your life. All he can do is kill your body. And if he does that, you go to heaven to be with Jesus forever. The cross is a cross of triumph. It's a cross of victory. We don't have to fear death. The cross took the sting out of death. 
Jesus hanging on the cross cried out, Tetelestai! It is finished! Mission accomplished perfectly! It's perfect. It's without spot or blemish. The price has been paid. The debt has been settled. The victory has been won. And it says he gave up the ghost. And of course, God the Father agreed, put his seal of approval on it, and declared his satisfaction with Christ's payment by raising him from the dead three days later. You know, I I think we should all just praise Jesus Christ for what he did on the cross, don't you? I think we ought to just praise Jesus for the work of his cross. I want to say three things about his cross this morning. Number one, the cross is the only way for sinners to be saved from their sin. Can I say that again? The cross of Jesus is the only way for sinners to be saved from their sin. It's the only way for sinners to be saved from the penalty of their sin. It's the only way for sinners to be delivered from the power that sin has had in their lives. I'm hearing more and more people tell stories about how they're seeing the power of the cross being applied to areas of their lives. And I've asked Vincent to come this morning and and share a, a story with us of how the cross has been setting him free from something in his life. We offer here at our church what we call encounter weekends, where you can go with some brothers or with some sisters, and it's an intense time, and it's a time where things because of the cross in your life, can get cut away and you can get freed up, all due to the power of the cross. So, Vincent, come and uh, if you'd stand right down here by the steps and just share your story with us. Anybody else nervous? Uh, (laughs) um, I was initially thinking, uh, as I was uh, preparing for this, uh, that I'd kind of pretty much bypass the actual sin part of the story. And, And then I was convicted and I said, why should I not be able to stand in front of my, my brothers and my sisters in Christ and share my, my struggles and, and more importantly, share what the Holy Spirit's doing within my life? Um, and secondly, I didn't really want to dilute the experience that I felt, um, not really just the encounter weekend, but over just the last couple of months as uh, the Holy Spirit's been working within my life. Um, my sin and my struggle was reading inappropriate and explicit stories. My sin wasn't that frequent, but as I was, and, and, and I still am, highly embarrassed that it's been in my life. And I don't mean like that little embarrassed, oh, I'm sorry I did this or I did that. I mean like deathly, deathly embarrassed of this. And Satan was really working uh, that through my life. He, um, he was kind of helping me build this, what I call a wall. And um, my wall was getting, you know, at first... You know, sin, and again, my frequency wasn't that bad. But, you know, it started out, my sin was was pretty small, and I could just kind of step over it, if you will. Um, But as time went on, the consequences of my sin was just building that wall up higher and higher. And um, I was having a really hard time getting to God. Um, And and it really made it difficult to pray and difficult to really just step out and, and be a good Christian, to do the things that you're supposed to do as a Christian. Um... So I was feeling very separated from God. My wall just really just too high. I kept hearing a little voice in the back of my mind going, 
You know, of all the sins in the Bible, this is the one. This is the one right here that's going to keep you separated from God. He's not going to allow you into his presence. The only uh, protection I felt my wall was giving me was I was almost protected from the Word of God. I, uh, no matter how much I would read the Bible, no, how, no matter how much I would talk about uh, God's Word, it wasn't really like sinking down into my heart. And um, worse, you know, as I read the Bible, there's a lot of parts in the Bible that talks about sexual impurity. And I'd hear that voice again in the back of my mind going, that's you. That's you. And, uh, you know, in a constant reminder somewhere in the back of my mind that Paul wrote, you know, you must not associate with anyone who is a brother but is sexually immoral. And so my, my ability to really act was really being impacted. So these are the thoughts going through my mind. As you can imagine, my prayer life was really suffering. My discussions with God, they, they certainly didn't feel like I was really connecting. So this wall that sin was helping me build, it was really getting strong, and it was getting very high. So I decided to go on to Promise Keepers uh, a couple of months back. I went with a lot of expectations. I really needed that mountaintop experience, and uh, I got one. As a matter of fact, it was not only the conference itself, which was fantastic, but the men, the Christian men that I went, I got to go with, was amazing, and the experience I had it, it enabled me to take. Uh, things away from their kind of tools, if you will, that would um, just kind of help me crack a little bit on my wall. Um, I also then, uh, a few weeks later, I took the opportunity to go to Men's Encounter. That was exactly what I needed. Um, I had the opportunity to share and pray with fellow Christian men, and they helped me to confess my sin to God. I prayed for forgiveness for my sin, and I also prayed to help me just tear down that wall that made me feel separated from God. And I'm not talking about one of those little prayers that you, you have, and I'm not saying little, I shouldn't say that, uh, before dinner or before a meal, but I'm like the prayer of somebody who's really desperate. Like it was my soul praying for this. <laughs> the Spirit really set me free that weekend. My wall was crushed, and I felt a true joy because I was welcome with God, and I knew I was welcome with God, and I knew I was forgiven by God. I was, and I am able to really share with God and to just feel His love around me and through me. And I know that uh, I know that God didn't change. You know, I I just have the feeling that on the other side of my wall, He was standing there hoping that I would join Him. And uh, I sent off to Pastor Jay. He asked me to, or he asked uh, the group to send something if you really felt strong over the weekend. And what I sent him was this: I've never felt the Spirit stronger in my life or working with it, or through me as I did this last weekend. It was very overwhelming and not a little awe-inspiring. I cannot stress enough, I have never felt the Spirit lead me in prayer or mold my thoughts like what I experienced that weekend. I just want to thank uh, God and Steve uh, just for allowing me back. Thanks. Thanks, Vincent. Make no mistake, according to God's word, the cross of Jesus is the only way for anyone and everyone to be made right with God, to be born again, to become citizens of his kingdom, and to live like citizens of the kingdom of God. It's the power of the cross in our lives. 
There is no other way. There's no other faith system or religion that offers a a way to do away with sin. Only the cross. Because of that, number two, the cross should be the only boast of all saved sinners. Amen? Perhaps the greatest Christian of all time, Paul, said this in Galatians 6, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. John Piper wrote these words, For redeemed sinners, every good thing, indeed every bad thing that God turns for the good, was obtained for us by the cross of Christ. Apart from the death of Christ, sinners get nothing but judgment. Apart from the cross of Christ, there's only condemnation. Therefore, everything that you enjoy in Christ is owing to the death of Jesus on that cross. And all of your rejoicing in all things should therefore be a rejoicing in the cross where all of your possessions were purchased for you at the cost of the death of the Son of God. The cross should be the only boast of all of us. And third, the cross demands a response. The cross demands a response. You see, I, I just don't. I think it's incongruous to hear a message like this and to respond, you know, well, okay, whatever. What time does the Browns game start? We're talking about the cross. It demands a response from sinners. The cross demands a response of repentance and faith, of turning from sin and turning to God and placing faith in Jesus Christ. Paul wrote it this way, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. That's the only appropriate response to the cross in the life of a sinful man or a sinful woman, repentance and faith. And for those of us who are saved sinners, the only appropriate response is a whole person worship of God through complete surrender to Him. This is what Paul says in Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, literally your whole person, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Surrender. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes, if you would. And I want to ask you a question as we finish up our time this morning. If you're a saved person in the room right now, I want to ask you to pray for those among us who may not be saved yet. Would you do that? But I wonder how many of you, if you were to get honest about yourself, maybe you've been coming to New Life for a while, maybe you've just been coming the last few weeks or months and you're learning about Jesus and there's something on the inside of you now that's drawing you to Jesus. And maybe you're here today and you'd say, you know what, I am not sure that I am saved. I am not sure that if I were to face God, that I would indeed have that perfect record, that perfect report card of Jesus to be able to hand to him. I'm not sure that that exchange has ever happened for me. But I'm ready to have the work of the cross applied to my life 
And I want to know how to take that step of faith. I wonder if you're in the room today and God's talking to you. You would say that. I, I'm not sure, but I want to be sure. I want to have that work of, work of the cross that I've heard about today applied to my life. I'd sure like to know how to take that step of faith.